This production contains material of a sensitive nature, including descriptions of abuse and other forms of violence, which may be triggering for some individuals. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Where do we turn when we don't know where to turn? When the unimaginable occurs, how do we begin to imagine a future for ourselves or those we love? On the 14th of March, 2017, Felicia Marshall's daughter, Lexi B., was stalked and murdered. Out of the ashes of that devastating experience, Felicia has grown a beautiful work of loving, serving, and caring for families with similar experience of trauma and tragedy. This is the story of a mother's love, the story of how a broken heart became a generous heart brimming with compassion for others facing loss and grief. The story of how our deepest, most painful wounds can become gifts of healing and wholeness for the world. This is Grant Me Justice. Welcome back to the Grant Me Justice podcast. My name is Paul Rankin. I'm here with the wonderful Felicia Marshall. Um, Today we're going to get into your experience of getting lost, as you say, in the criminal system. Um, Before we do that, and this may feel like an odd place to begin, but I want to talk a little bit about um, your daughter Lexi's birth. And we've touched on that in previous episodes, um, but we haven't really gotten into the story of it. And um, I I wonder if you could just talk about kind of how you experienced just even the process of giving birth to her. Um, you, had, you had kind of an encounter with the doctors. Can you bring us into that? Sure. Um, I had um, had to have an emergency C-section um, for Lexi's um, birth because um, her heart rate was beating three times normal. Mm-hmm. And so once I got there and they began to take all of the tests, they kept asking whether or not I had taken any drugs. Have you taken any drugs? I was like, no, I haven't. You know, I've, I've never taken drugs. I've never um, done anything like that. I don't drink and I don't um, take drugs, but they kept pushing and pushing and pushing because her heart rate was so high. Mm-hmm. And um, I was told that they would have to do an emergency C-section um, because if, if they didn't, uh, I would be in danger and she would be in, in danger as well. Uh, I thought it was odd that they kept asking and pushing me, um, asking me whether or not I had taken drugs. And I, I'm assuming that maybe that was common, I don't know, um, or whether or not it was racially driven because mm-hmm. I was a black woman in there um, and her heart rate was so um, high. Um, and this this condition after they diagnosed what the condition was wasn't something that they had seen in Mississippi. So, um, but she was given the term of having a uh, the and it's hard for me to pronounce, mm-hmm. uh, but it's tachycardia is the last part of it, and it's just an abnormal um, heartbeat. Um, so much so that Lexi had to have open heart surgery to. Um, make her heart beat normally. Mm-hmm. It was a condition that at the time no one had seen 
um, that condition in the state of Mississippi. Uh, she was at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and no one has seen that in a child before. And they did not know how to really, you know, how to handle her condition. Hmm. Um, they did do tests on me to see whether or not I had um, been taking any kind of drugs. And then they came back and told me that uh, it wasn't a drug issue, that she actually had an abnormal heartbeat. Hmm. Yeah, so then you go to... Charleston, and you describe all this in your book. Yes, Charleston was, um, and I talk about this in the book because of all of the other things that had happened in my life. Um, Charleston was a contrast, deep contrast to what my life had been. Uh, just um, stepping off of the plane into this beautiful city that was uh, all of the um, arch architectural details and mm -hmm. just the beauty of the city was just a coming um, to, to my life. And I, and I write in the book that, you know, I needed Charleston and mm -hmm. I did, I needed Charleston. Um, and I walk in there, um, uh, to the uh, room and, and Lexi is, is in a swing and her, her skin tone was a dark, she was dark complected. And so her skin tone was, um, you know, dark in, com in contrast to the pink dress that she mm -hmm. had on. She had a, a little pink uh, ruffle dress in the swing, and I asked if I could take her out of the swing. And then when I um, began to take her out of the swing, then I noticed that she had wires attached to her entire body. And then that was um, made me kind of nervous because um, once I was able to um, examine her, then I knew that my life would be different hmm. uh, in her care. Her, the, her heart was literally in my hands. Hmm. Um, she had an incision from her thorax all the way down to her belly button and um, heart monitor wires attached. And it was scary. It hmm. really was scary. And for three years of her life and mine, um, that time was used to take care of her, her heart mm. and keep her alive. Yeah. So, you know, you, t you talk about having her, literally having her heart in your hands. Um, and I want to I go back just to name, you, know, you mentioned this, that the doctors, um, I mean, it's not an unfounded assumption, but they were clearly making some pretty big assumptions about you and about mm -hmm. your life and your lifestyle um, based on these physiological symptoms that mm -hmm. your newborn was having with a racing heart. Mm -hmm. um, that, as I read that in the book, as I hear you talking about it, that, that's a really heartbreaking for me to hear um, that they would go directly to that conclusion rather than explore other options. And, and as you say, it's understandable from a certain point of view, but it's also, it's very sad and, and uh, troubling to me. Um, and then you also describe, you know, it, it was a heart condition and then her life ended with a bullet to, to her heart. Mm -hmm. um, and then you describe that as kind of a three-year process of caring for it. And I know that's in the books. We won't, we won't talk more, much more about that, but you you're going to visits and then the visits become less and less frequent, but there's kind of a three-year process where you're finally released. Um, and then, so that's kind of on one end of her life and it's kind of bookended by this other um, 
three-year cycle of events where, um, similar to the doctors in that initial moment of her life, the people whose job it was or should have been to take care of her and make sure she was okay were more interested in kind of finding fault with you and your trying to name what you had done wrong to put her in this position. So, um, so that gets us into um, kind of jump, jumping a lot of years here, but gets mm -hmm. us to, uh, she was born in March 1st, 1991. Yes. And she was murdered on March 7th, 14th. 14th I'm sorry, March 14th, 2007. Knew there was a seven in there. 2017. 17. I'm sorry. <laughs> can we, can we add it on? No, that's good. That's okay. Yeah. Um, I would have had the math right, but, but the, yeah, so she was 26 yes. at the time. Um, so 26 years later, um, you entered this other process. And, and um, I recently overheard uh, an attorney talking to some people about another member of our community who had recently lost a child to um, a violent crime. And they were just, the, somebody had just asked how they doing and what, what's going on. And um, the attorney was kind of helping, you know, being an attorney and having knowledge, helping them understand kind of the process of kind of navigating that court system, the criminal system. And was talking about some of the benchmarks or milestones in that process and, and how, what a long process it can be. And so um, the point being, um, he said toward the end of that, um, and, it, and it can be really hard for the families because you have to keep revisiting these things. But he said, but the judges really put a lot of stock and a lot of weight when they think about sentencing in what victims' families want or, or how they're feeling or, or what their wishes are. And that, I think, to say the least, has not been your experience of that, of that process. Um, I wonder if I could just read kind of how you lead into this. Um, you say, um, you know, you narrate the, the funeral and the aftermath of that and this kind of lull of about a year between that, between her actual murder and when you enter this process with the so-called justice system. You say, I assumed someone would contact me to explain the process. I assumed, I assumed the pro prosecutors would represent our interests. I waited patiently, hoping the process would offer consolation, closure, and yes, justice. That call never came. Can you bring us into that experience? How did you, for example, learn about the first hearing? Um, yes, I was waiting because, you know, and I talk about it in the book that, you know, I wasn't familiar with the criminal justice system. I had never been to court, um, didn't know what a courtroom looked like. And so I was just waiting, waiting for someone to contact me and tell me uh, what to do next. Um, the, the way that I heard about the first hearing was... Um, from someone called that I knew, that knew the other family, um, knew that that hearing was on that day. Mm -hmm. And no one had contacted me, no one from the district attorney's office, no one from Jack's police department, 
No one had contacted me. I learned from someone that knew me and knew the other family and called and said that I needed to get to the courtroom immediately. And so um, once hearing the call, you know, I left my job and went down to the courtroom. So do you know how they found out about it? So first of all, I want to just make this clear. Nobody in any official capacity called you to say, hey, Ms. Marshall, the trial set for this date or the hearing, I guess. It's not a trial at this point, but the initial, the preliminary hearing. No, no one called me from the day that Lexi was murdered till um, after the first hearing. Mm. I had no contact with no one. Yeah. So that that's, I guess, if our assumptions are based on what we see on a movie or a TV where the, you know, investigators are in contact with the family and keeping them updated, nothing like that. No, and I found that to be true with the majority, well, just about every family that I serve, mm -hmm. uh, they have the same struggles as I have mm -hmm. with um, being kept up to date in regards to what's going on with these cases. And many times when they call, uh, they, I mean, they are given a hard time for even just calling. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is common, this mm -hmm. is common in our city, um, dealing with our criminal justice system, that these, these families are having a hard time getting information about what's going on with. Matter of fact, I just got a call last night mm. about a family that was frustrated uh, trying to get information in regards to a case. Mm. Yeah. And so the acquaintance who did let you know, how did, how did they find out? Well, I don't mind telling who it was. And I talk about um, my brother mm -hmm. um, in my book. And um, my brother is the one that actually called mm -hmm. because my brother knew the family that okay. um, murdered Lexi. Mm -hmm. And so then they were connected to someone that's in their family and that's the way that they found out. And then he called okay. and uh, wanted to make sure that I was there. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so bring us into. You say you've never been to. No. You've never been in a trial. You've never been to even in, in step foot in a courtroom. No, I had never so, been to court. Never, um, never. You know, was called for jury duty mm -hmm. or any of that. So the whole process to me for new and I, was new. And I think, you know, there's an assumption just because you know I'm an African American woman that I know what the court system is. And, mm -hmm. and for me, I did not. I yeah. never, um, I've gotten a speeding ticket, but I would have never been in trouble, <laughs> you know? And so the whole process to me was new. And I talk about, um, you know, it's like um, having to take this course, you know, that mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a deep learning curve. And I talk mm -hmm. about that and it is a deep learning curve and you don't, really find out all of the intimate details of it until it's over mm. and you don't know what, what to do. Yeah. I guess I can say we do is come alongside families and, and offer that guidance and that navigation. So um, that's a really beautiful part of it. Yeah. And I do want to talk about just kind of what that was like then. Like what, um, but do you want to say anything about the work of Grant Me Justice to kind of guide and advocate for families? Yes, you know, once I completed the process, and I'll go back into detail about what that process was, but one of the things 
that I recognized was that there were probably other families that had gone through this process just like mm -hmm. myself and um, did not know what to do or were going through the process. And I just wanted um, other people not to have to experience um, the criminal justice system the way that I had. And I felt like I was alone in the mm -hmm. process. You know, no one was guiding me and telling me, well, this is what you need to expect. Uh, this is what's going to happen. Um, you'll go to this, not not even to prepare, you know, to say something to the judge. You know, I thought mm -hmm. I, I should have been told even that to be mm -hmm. able to prepare. prepare. Um, so my goal was, with uh, Grammy Justice was to make sure that those families that um, came through the doors of Grant Me Justice would have someone that was knowledgeable of the process enough to be able to guide them through hmm. uh, whatever season of the criminal justice system they were in. Mm -hmm. That feels like a tremendous gift to offer if that was all you did. And then, mm -hmm. as we've said um, several times, you do much more than that. Um, mm -hmm. So tell us about the court, your, your experience on the first day. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? What was it like? Just bring us into the scene. What did it look like? What was, and what, uh, were, what was going on inside you? It feels like it would be overwhelming just to walk into that strange environment. Yeah, um, the first hearing um, had to be continued. And this is the reason why, because the crime lab lost a gun. Um, and so that was... Um, you know, to think that we have people in charge of making sure that evidence is secure mm -hmm. and the mere fact that they had lost the gun, the weapon that was used to mm -hmm. uh, murder Lexi was to me a stab in the heart because, mm -hmm. you know, I am banking on them doing this thing right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the first that was the first hearing. Um, and after learning that, I was just devastated. But just walking into the room, you know, I wasn't hadn't been there before. It was dark. It just seems like to me it was super dark. There were a lot of people um, in the courtroom. But at the same time, I didn't recognize anybody. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there were people there on her side of the um, family that I, I should have recognized, but I didn't. I didn't recognize anybody. And just like the, um, you know, I, I give the analogy of being uh, the red umbrella in the sea of black ones, that's kind of how I felt. I felt mm -hmm. like, again, alone in this process. And um, I was expecting um, someone to represent me, someone from the state of Mississippi to say, you know, I'm advocating on behalf of this victim, but no one did that. I was kind of like in it by myself at that point mm. and um, walked in there. I did not know the process. I did not know that I would have, I would be privy to listening to all of the other cases before Lexi's case. Um, probably like many people, you think that when you go into the courtroom, it's just going to be you and this is just going to be the only case that they'll be hearing. But it wasn't like that. They, you know, I was able to listen to uh, all of the cases that came before uh, Lexi's case. Mm. And um, it was nerve wracking. Mm. Um, it was nerve wracking because uh, all of this was new to me. And 
I did not know what to expect. I did not even know what to ask for. Um, but I thought I had the upper hand. I went in thinking I had the upper hand because I'm the victim. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> what was that like um, just to hear the other? You say you felt alone. Did it make you feel less alone or more alone? Or what was, as you heard, all the other, I guess, cases on the docket? I'm not sure if that's the technical language. But. Well, listening to all of the cases um, that were on the docket, um, I guess I'm, you know, my, I felt compassion towards um, the people and hearing all of the details um, of all of the cases. Uh, I don't think there were any other cases that were there for murder. Mm -hmm. There were um, a lot of aggravated assaults and robberies and um, different cases like that. Mm -hmm. um, but just hearing the judge, it was like they were just passed through. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything that was, that was done in detail. Mm -hmm. So it was just like they were just passed, passed through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds almost kind of like a, I'm, I'm picturing like a factory line type. Okay, next, next, next. Um, so then you arrive at um, Evelyn's appearance before the judge. And as you describe it in the book, the, the judge asks some questions that feel kind of formulaic, I think. Is that fair to say? Yes. Do you want to talk about what that was like, what she said, what you heard? Um... um. When I looked, when I noticed it was her, I was looking for her because the, um, all of the people that were incarcerated that had court that day, they brought them in. Mm -hmm. And so, and you know, I talk about them having on the orange jumpsuits with mm -hmm. Mississippi Department of Corrections on the back and you know, how gloomy the courtroom felt. And I was looking for her because um, I just wanted to. I just wanted to see this person, look this person in the eye, yeah. that had done this to my daughter, and I hadn't seen her since the day this happened. Well, really, before the day it happened. Um, and she looked totally different. And I talk about this in the book that um, the day that she, um, Lexi was murdered, um, she was really thin, as if she had been on a you know drug binge. She was just totally different and hair was you know straggly and thin and all over her head and this person did not look like this this person looked healthy mm. um, she had picked up quite a bit of weight weight um, she looked good she mm. really did she looked good and um, but going through that process just um, I did not know what to expect. And I did not know how I was going to feel once I laid my eyes on her. Mm. Um, and I thought that again, that going through this process, that I would get justice. I thought that I would walk away. Um, she would get um, time, significant time for what she had done. But um, that did not happen. And a lot of people ask me, what does justice look like to me? What, mm -hmm. what does justice look like to me? And for me, 
Um, I felt like justice should have been um, for the evidence to be laid out, uh, um, jurors to be there, and it to be tried, going through the trial process. And for me, if she walked away free from that, I was good with that. Hmm. But it did not happen like that. You know, we were going, uh, she had been offered a plea deal and she accepted the plea deal. Hmm. And um, so me going before the judge on that particular day was for me to uh, refute the plea hmm. and to ask for justice to be served for Lexi's death. Yeah. And it was hard. It was, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to experience because I felt like I was speaking for Lexi. Mm. You know, I was speaking on her behalf. And in the courtroom with me, one of those people that was there was my son. And this was his first time, too. Um, and I talk about this in the book that it was his first time seeing her. You know, all of all of Lexi's immediate family that was there. It was his it was our first time laying our eyes on her and just knowing when you the, say her, you mean Evelyn, Evelyn. knowing um, how much Lexi cared for her. And all of the things that Lexi had experienced and knowing that this person was responsible for her death was just overwhelming. And my son was sitting behind me and just to hear him weep and to hear how deep it was. Um, That, that really did something to me, just to hear my son crying mm. and the way that he was crying. We had never talked anything, and he and I hadn't spoken about, you know, how he felt about um, Lexi's death, but to just to hear him, hear him weep and weep and weep as if it was so deep. Um, so my going before the judge was after hearing him weep. And uh, so I was standing not just for myself, but um, for Lexi's child, um, for Lexi's siblings, mm -hmm. and for me as her mom and her dad and um, stepdad. And, and so me going before the judge was representative of everybody that was hurting. I knew how I was hurting, mm -hmm. um, but I, me going before the judge represented everybody that was hurt here. Mm -hmm. And um, listening to her ask um, Evelyn questions like, what is your name? Um, ask her how many children she had. Ask her how many um, has she gone to school? And she was, uh, Evelyn began to tell her how old she was, told her she had been to school and college, and um, she was kind of boasting about her life. Mm -hmm. And she said one of the things that stood out um, was she said, if I could trade my life for hers, I would. 
And um, for me, if she could trade her life for hers, she would not be there asking for a plea deal because Lexi's life was taken. She was there asking for an opportunity to live her life. Mm. Lexi's life was taken. And so um, from that point, I think, I knew that was a lie. I knew that was a lie, that she had no desire to, to trade her life for Lexi. And the ironic thing about it, though, was that Lexi would have traded her life for hers. She loved her just that much. And to see her there um, talking about, you know, her education and all of the things that she did and wanted to do and, and boasting and, you know, and then saying that she would tr um, trade her life for Lexi's, that, that was not true. And um, they went through the process of telling her what the um, plea deal was. Mm -hmm. And her plea was based on the fact that she was supposed to testify against the other two people that were um, arrested in her case. Um, and the judge said, I can either accept this plea or I have the right to deny this plea. Mm. She asked whether or not she, um, she Evelyn had been coerced into pleading guilty. She asked if her plea had been explained to her and um, she said yes to all of those things that she had not been coerced but that she you know everything had been explained to her and um, so the judge was about to rule on her on her plea deal mm -hmm. and no one had acknowledged me there mm -hmm. and I just you know, raise my hand. Let me um, pause, before we get into that part, if you don't mind, I'd like to just interject because a couple of things. Um, I've learned so much through this process about how how the system works, how it worked in your case. Um, I've, I have prior to working on this book, I thought a lot more about it from the other side. Um, you know, I've read The New Jim Crow and thought a lot about the problem of mass incarceration and thought about um, sort of the how inordinate sentencing and, and even arrest and prosecution are um, when it comes to in you know, black and other minority communities um, in this country. And, and so we're, we're kind of looking at this from the other side, um, but there's a lot of nuance here. And so I'd, I'd at least like to, to name that and talk about um, what the what the problem with the plea is, and I'll I'll read what you wrote because I feel like it's it's very clear and it helped me to understand. And we kind of you know as as we've said, I worked editorially on the book um, for a good a good minute, about a year and a half, um, and so we wrestled I think with the wording on this this paragraph probably more than any other mm -hmm. proportionally in the book. Um, and you you write. Um, that the book is a journal of your disappointment with the system um, you believed in implicitly when you were still blissfully ignorant of what it was like for those tangled in a bureaucratic web. And then you go on to say, most would think that our judicial system would come close to the truth since judges are at least present, though their role is to preside. 
is to preside. For me, it felt more arbitrary than arbitrating, as they mainly served to rubber stamp backroom deals negotiated in the form of plea bargains, which deny the victim the rights to pursue justice and the defendants the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of their peers. So you, you talk about the injustice on both sides. Right? They deny victims their rights and they deny the defendants their rights. Um, and so I'm going to ask you if, if you have anything more, any, if you want to unpack that a little. Um, but could you first, could you just talk about, um, lay out what were the terms of Evelyn's plea deal that she was offered and accepting in this moment? Um, Evelyn's plea was for um, 20 years, 15 years to serve, um, no probation. Um, she was to testify against the other two. That mm -hmm. was that was her plea. Okay. Um, and I, I and just going through number two, uh, plea number two was really when all of this really. Mm -hmm you know, kind of sat in my spirit about the fact that both of us are standing before the judge seeking justice. Mm. Um, both, of, both of us have the expectations, but neither one of us really get it. Mm -hmm. And um, I talk about that more so in number two and number three. Mm -hmm. But um, I feel like um, in terms of what's going on um, with the judicial system, that there are backroom deals, I t I, that there are, um, and I, I go more in detail in it in the book about I could just imagine them sitting around having a cup of coffee or, or a drink um, the night before and them um, making the deal and then them showing up in court and the d judge just rubber stamping that. That's how I felt. Mm -hmm. And that's what my experience and many of the experiences of the, of the families that I deal with. I was expecting um, for this was um, I, I was expecting for the, ju the judge to hear me. Because mm -hmm. in my mind, she said, I have the right to accept mm -hmm. or deny this plea. Um, so that brings us to, um, I, I don't want to keep interrupting, but I want to kind of, uh, for, for those who maybe hadn't read the book, the book's available and, and you should definitely buy it and read it. It goes into more detail on everything we're talking about. But I'd like to bring, bring our listeners into this moment. So there's a moment where you realize, like, nobody's acknowledged me. Nobody's going to call on me. I'm not going to get a chance to speak unless I just yes. assert myself. And so you raise your hand. And then talk about how, what follows there. What do you say? Um, I raised my hand and the judge asked who I was. And I said, I'm Alexia's mother. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, can I say something? Mm -hmm. And she said, yes. And um, I walk up to the podium. Like I said, this all was overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to really say to, mm -hmm. <laughs> say to the judge. And... Um, but I, the first thing I said was that I forgive Evelyn, hmm. and um, and I had forgiven, have forgiven Evelyn for what she did. Hmm. But at the same time, my forgiveness and me seeking justice were 
two different things. You know, God is a God of justice. And, um, but I, I, I poured my heart. Again, I, I walked up to this podium here in my son. And um, I walked up to the podium. Um, just, I couldn't even stand. You know, my emotions were coming from a place so deep. Um, from hearing my son laying my eyes on Evelyn for the first time, the whole process of being in this huge, overwhelming room, uh, hearing her say, if I can change my, trade her life for my, all of that, and then just being reminded of my loss uh, of Lexi's death and all of the things that, um, you know, that had taken place over that year, the fact that she had a daughter that we had been raising, all of those things were coming up. And for a moment there, I couldn't even stand, you know. And through my tears, I had to breathe through my tears and, and tell her, tell her the story that, um, you know, Lexi wouldn't have done this to her, you know. Um, tell her how much we miss Lexi. Talk, talk to her about picking out a casket and uh, telling her about um, raising her daughter and all of the details of Lexi's murder and how much we miss her and that um, we, we, we desire justice for her. And, um, and I said, Your Honor, you have the right to accept or deny this plea. And I'm asking you to deny this plea. Mm. Um, and I sat down, you know, walked back to my seat. And then to hear her say mm. that she was accepting that plea blew my mind. Mm. It just blew my mind. Um, I couldn't believe it, you know, after, after hearing, after seeing me, you know, not even being able to stand and, um, after hearing, I know if I heard him, she heard him and, um, to see me, hear him, even hear me talk about my loss and the loss of a person that had been murdered. And I told her, I said, Lexi has been killed with an AK-47 assault rifle. And the bullet went to her heart. To hear that, I would just think, I was just naive enough to think that, you know, certainly she would not accept this plea. Hmm. But to hear her say the words, announce the words, I accept this plea, just blew my mind. But then I, you know, after, I thought I had another chance, though, because I said, one of the things that the, that the judge said that if she perjured herself, if Evelyn perjured herself, she found that she perjured, perjured herself, that she would have to serve the entire term, right, her entire term. I knew she would perjure herself. Hmm. I just knew that she would. So I left there hurt and broken and upset and all of those things. 
but I'm I'm banking on the next. I'm banking on the trial for number two, because I knew that she would perjure herself, and that way she would have to um, serve her. Let me just interrupt here again and say, when you talk about the trial for number two and, and number three, you've mentioned, so there were three defendants, three arrests made in, in the case. Um, so we've talked about the first and the, I think what we could probably agree is the principal actor in this, which was mm-hmm. Evelyn, mm-hmm. Um, who had kind of, as you describe elsewhere, had basically been stalking Lexi and, and, and um, and have been very abusive even prior to that. Um, but there were two others involved, um, someone named Calvin and someone named Kiana. Yes. And so they had three separate hearings on three separate dates, and they were spaced pretty widely. Yes. Um, so you were, we've, we've already said you were in the, in the process for a good three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make sure that's clear for our, for our listeners. So you want to talk, is there anything else you want to say about um, Evelyn's hearing and, and how that went down or do you want to go ahead and transition and talk about that second hearing? Well, after the first hearing, then I was introduced to um, the person that was um, this, the uh, prosecutor Mm -hmm. um, who then gave me his telephone number and told me that, you know, he was going to work for Lexi's, Mm. on Lexi's behalf. And um, I had hope that he, you know, that he would. Hmm. I really had hope that he would. And I had hope that the second hearing would be different than the first. Hmm. Um, but that was not the case. Yeah. You had another encounter with the district attorney, assistant district attorney. Um, and he, he said um, to you, as you record in the book, the victim's feelings have no bearing on the matter. And this is a direct quote. The victims cannot negotiate, please, he said. I never wanted to get, you go on to say it. I never wanted to negotiate the plea. I did, however, want the state of Mississippi to consider the impact of the crime as a victim, the one the crime was perpetrated against, as a viable part of the process. In other words, the victim's only role in this criminal system is to show up, to be seen but not heard, to accept whatever is presented to them without recourse. And uh, you go on to say you, that this conversation, you felt like one of the only people who told the truth in all of this. And you appreciate his honesty, his candor, but at the same time, the reality of that truth was fairly devastating. Um, and I'm, you say, I you know, felt the hair rise on the back of my, my neck. I felt sick to my stomach. And you go on to talk about that and just how angry that made you. Um, I'm curious, it, it, do you, would you say that that was the moment when you sort of, the scales fell away? Or was it sort of this kind of death by a thousand cuts, you know, enlightenment by a thousand candles? Were you... Were you kind of gradually awakened to this reality of the unjustness of the justice, so-called justice system, or were you, or was there a sort of a, a moment where? I think changed? I still had hope in the system. Even then. Even then, I just, I just, I, I, I think I still had hope in the system. Mm-hmm. In the midst of this, um, um, I had been given 
the folder that contained all of the information pertaining to Lexi's um, case. And I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but um, so I had, I saw the weapon. Hmm. I saw all of the, I read all of the victims, I mean, all of the witness statements. Hmm. And um, so I was privy to a lot of information and I had hope in the system. I had I had no reason not not to. Of course, this was my first experience, but I just really had hope in the system as a victim. I just kept saying, you know, I am the victim here. I'm representing the victim. Lexi was the victim, but I'm representing the victim here. And I just thought that that meant something, that that had some value and some merit that surely you would take into account <laughs> the fact that someone had been murdered here. I mean, you know, and that you would take into account what justice looks like to me. But that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and we can go into the second, the second hearing if you like, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I still had hope in the system. So you say, just to kind of wrap this, this section up, you say, um, after you address the judge and you, you initiate that by saying, I've forgiven Evelyn, and yet you're demanding or attempting to demand justice in, in terms of the sentencing. You say, my words seem to fall on deaf ears. After everything I said, as if I'd never uttered a word, the judge finally ruled on the case, awarding Evelyn the terms of the plea her journeys had previously worked out with the state. Mandatory minimum of 15 years with credit for time served, as you kind of laid out. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and yet I can't help feeling that there was a, a real value in the fact that you stood up and spoke for Lexi, for yourself, for all the people who loved her and cared about her and wanted what was best for. Um, I've described that in you know, other conversations as it feels like a prophetic witness. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you want to say any more about that or if you want to pivot and talk about Calvin's, Calvin's hearing. I think I had to be there, you know, regardless of what the outcome was. It was, mm -hmm. I felt the responsibility as her mother mm -hmm. uh, to be there and to say these things. Um, I think I stood um, for Sugar and uh, for her siblings and her dad. I think it was necessary, and I stood there for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, I wanted to let them know how I was feeling, and you know, you know, I talked through my book about uh, things that had happened in my life. And whenever there was difficulty in my life, I adjusted. And this was another adjustment that I had to make um, to really understanding uh, this thing called the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm, I'm slowly realizing as I begin to go through number two is that this is a, a game of who wins and who loses, just like playing a chess game. Mm -hmm. Um, who who the person is as far as the defendant, and I was told that the criminal justice system is for the defendant, it's not for the for the victim. I'm like, what? 
But yes, it's 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 designed around the defendant, and we'll get get into some of the more um, the dynamics of that. But yes, it it just um, I adjusted, and like I said, I I still though had hope, um, and I'm still at this point believing that the state of Rep uh, Mississippi is representing me. Mm. You know, I didn't I didn't have an attorney. Um, I didn't even know if I had the right to have an attorney. Had I, had I known that at the beginning, I talk about that in the book, if I had known in the beginning that I had a right to have an attorney mm. or someone to, to explain to me the process, I would have, but I did not know that. So defendants are read their rights, uh, Miranda's, Miranda warning, Miranda rights. You have a right to X, Y, Z, you have a right to an attorney. Um, but victims, are not read their rights, but they do have rights. Yes, they do have rights. And matter of fact, yesterday, um, which I have a, uh, the rights that are, I have it on my website because I want everybody to be, be aware of the fact mm -hmm. that they have to complete a form in order to receive their rights. Um, the victim does have rights, but you do have to sign a form and you have to deliver though that completed form to three different places. And um, I was reading on the district attorney's office the other day, and they were talked about, it was going into great detail about the rights of victims. But then underneath that, it says, in order for you to receive these rights, you have to complete this form. And I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> but it's true. For a victim, you're not read your rights. Many victims are not even aware of the fact that they have rights. Many victims are not aware that in order for them to be contacted, that they need to fill out a form and complete that form and deliver that form to three different places. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. And, you know, beyond the, I mean, just the emotional, psychological, spiritual devastation of the loss itself, having to go through the criminal justice system, and then on top of all that, having this sort of paperwork to fill out that you don't even know, even if you do know, it's a, it's a whole other thing, so. Um, and just let me say this, I had a, a family that, um, you know, told me she completed her form, because I was like, mm -hmm. you need to make sure, her case is, is um, still in the DA's office right now. There has not been a plea deal nor a trial set yet. And this is, um, that person has been incarcerated since 2021. Mm. This is 2023. Uh, and I talk about that because there are a lot of cases that have um, been more recent mm. cases that have gone before her case. Mm. Um, but she completed her form and she was delivering her completed form um, to um, the police department to the DA's office, um, and she had um, gotten it notarized and all those things. She went to go deliver it. They didn't even know what it was. Hmm. They didn't even know why she was there delivering her form. So a lot of the people that are even, you know, in the position to receive the forms don't even realize that they have to have the forms. Hmm. Here's the other thing with that is if they're they're not familiar with it, who's to say that the form is delivered where it needs to be delivered? 
who's to say that the person that needs to get that information gets that information? Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll maybe move a little more quickly through um, the, the second, the next couple of hearings. I think we've covered most of the, the principal things, but just in terms of your experience, I think it's worth um, naming a couple of things. When you talk about, write about Calvin's trial, you, you describe it as same circus, different faces and names. Um, and, then, and yet there is a, a major shift that's happening in you. And, and I think this is important, um, what I would call the shift toward empathy for the defendant. Um, you, you write, and I'm quoting the book here, what if that person standing at the podium was my son? Mm. Um, and then at the end of Calvin's here, and after he's accepted his plea and you've had a chance to address the judge so that's some part of that same circus thing and the judge has basically ignored everything you said or to all appearances mm -hmm. um calvin speaks to you so i don't know you can talk about any of that or uh, all of it i'm curious just to hear kind of if you want to unpack a little bit of that yeah, this, this trial was different for me. Calvin um, was accused as the, the shooter. Mm. Um, so everything surrounding Calvin's case was based on the fact that he's the one that's that actually pulled the trigger. named as pulling the trigger. Mm. And um, but just sitting there in in that process and looking at Kevin and once Kevin got up and gave his um, name and the same information and said that he had children and he was at home working on a car when Evelyn drove up and um, but you know just giving his details and um, but one of the things that clicked with me was the fact that he was around the same age as my son. Hmm. And um, all of this, um, these three trials was, um, and me experiencing these three trials was a spiritual uh, awakening for me. Mm. And I'm grateful to the Lord that he allowed me to um, be able to see something deeper than what was really set before me. But... Um, just recognizing that um, he was around the same age of, as my son. And then I immediately went to thinking, what if this was, my son's name is Jermaine, what, would, what if this was Jermaine, you know? Mm. And um, my, when I questioned myself and asking what would I do if that was Jermaine, my answer to that was I would be there. Um, mm with Jermaine. As his mother, I would be there. And if um, if he had done it, I would want him to say that he had done it. If he had done it, I wanted him to be tried by his peers. Um, if he'd done it, I would not want him to plead guilty if he had not pleaded. I mean, if he had not done it, I would not want him to plead guilty to something that he did not do. And if if he had, I would want justice for him. I would want to stand there before the judge and I would want him to have a speedy trial. Um, all of the things that the law says that he's supposed to have, I would want him to say that he, I would want him to have that. And I would be there for him. Mm. Um, and I also talk about, you know, the families of the defendant and the victim. None of us asked to be here, you know. I recognize the fact that Calvin's mother didn't ask to be mm. there. 
but she was there, you know, we, we're there thrust into this thing called the criminal justice system. And, um, and none of us desire to be here. We, we don't want to be here. Um, but we have expectations. I have an expectation of being represented by the state of Mississippi. And that person has um, an expectation of being um, all of the things that the, uh, the rights of a defendant that they they expecting that when they come before a judge and uh, walking away from that changed me. Um, Calvin, um, it was something different about Calvin. Hmm. You know, Calvin told me some things um, that made me think two things, uh, made me know two things. In my heart of hearts, um, made me know two things. Number one, he was not the shooter. And number two, that there was somebody else that could have possibly been involved. Um, uh, after Calvin went through the process and his his uh, plea was accepted, and by the way, um, that judge told me that I would have to wait on God's justice. Hmm. Um, that was devastating to me. And she said, you know, you're going to have to wait. If you, you're looking for justice, you're going to have to wait on God's justice. So, hmm. you know, that that... That was devastating to hear that. Um, and then this this particular time, I'm getting to know, get a feel for what this system is all about. And to know that um, there are some things that's happening that's not right and just on both sides. Mm -hmm. But Calvin turned to me and said, Ms. Marshall, he said, I'm so sorry. He said, if I had known that they, that's what they were going to do with my gun, I would not have given it to them. Mm. He said, I love Lexi just like she was my family, and I'm so sorry. Um, contrast that with what Evelyn said, which was nothing. Um, but I felt that this young man, his fate was already given to him. He mm -hmm. knew he had to serve 15 years uh, without a probation. Um, when he gets out, he, he'll have a felony record. And um, one of the things the judge told me was that, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the good things about this mm -hmm. uh, plea is that he'll be a felon when he gets out. And um, for him to turn to me and apologize, he did not have to do that, number one. He didn't have to do that. And he did not have to give me all of those details that he gave me. And, um, but he did. And so I walked away, number one, knowing that this judicial system had failed Calvin. It had failed him. And if he was not the shooter, if that had been my son, I would not want Jermaine to say that I, I'm guilty of shooting her and knowing in my heart I had not sh shot her. Mm. I would not want him to do that. And I would want him to go through a trial and let a jury decide what happens to him. See, here's the, op here's the thing that happens many times in these plea deals is the the... The defendant is told, if you don't accept this plea, you may get 40 years. The victim is told, you need to just calm down, 
be quiet, accept this plea, because if, if you make up any ruckus about this, then they may walk free. Hmm. What happens with this is there is no justice. There is no true justice on here. And when I think about grant me justice, or grant me justice, the name comes from Luke chapter one, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse one through eight is go on before the unjust judge seeking justice. And that's what we do. We go back. We keep going victims and defendants. We're going before the unjust judge seeking justice. And I'm always reminded of that is that this, un, this, ju this judge is in need of justice too. Mm -hmm. And when we go into these, these courtrooms, yes, we are to seek justice. We are to do everything that we can to seek justice on this side. But we have to be mindful that when we walk away, and we don't receive the justice that we desire and that we need to see here, that we know that there's someone that holds ultimate justice, and that's God. Mm. That's the only hope that we have is in Christ Jesus. That's it, because when, when you look at, and I just, I'm just looking at the cases in regards to Alexia's case. I'm not looking at anybody else's case but mine. And I realize that there are a lot of families that have lost loved ones that don't feel the same way that I do. But when I look at the injustices of the system, and I know that there are a lot of African-American men that are in prison that should not be there. Mm. I recognize that. that there's a lot of people in prisons today that should not, do, uh, should not be there based on the fact that they took a plea deal for something that they did not do. I don't think I have anything to add to that, um, but I will say just it feels like that's that sort of tension. Um, and you, you talked about you know, no justice for the victims, no justice for the defendants, because of the way these plea deals kind of incentivize just accepting it for the sake of expedience and moving on, um, rather than rather than taking the bigger risk um, of a of a higher sentence. Um, I want to talk about um, just there, you know, there's a moment in there you've said um, in describing your fir the first experience with Evelyn's hearing that <clears throat> you kind of came to realize there's no one there who was going to speak for you or advocate for you or stand up for your rights unless you did it for yourself. Um, but you also described that there was at least in an official sense, somebody who was there as <clears throat> a victim's rights advocate. And you describe the victim's rights advocate as someone you had no significant interactions with. Um, you say he might as well have been invisible and mute for all the service he offered me and my family. Um, he never told me anything about my rights or other resources available to me as a victim of violence in the state. As the job title suggests, this person should champion, protect, and act as a voice for the victim. When the time came for him to walk actual victims through the process, he faded into the background and did virtually nothing. And I, I bring that up, and I bring that up specifically as we come to the close of our time, um, because I feel like that's a huge vacuum. There's somebody there in an official capacity whose job it is to be that voice for the victim which is the subtitle or the, the main mission of 
your organization, Grant Me Justice. And so I just, I feel like what Grant Me Justice exists to do is to step into that void in some ways and to provide that. So I just wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that as we close up this episode. Yes, he was introduced to me as a victim's advocate. And when I think about um, an advocate, you know, I just, I just think that's a person that's supposed to stand in the gap, you know, for a cause or an individual. But no, he didn't offer anything to me. He didn't, he didn't tell me about um, my rights. He didn't explain my rights. He didn't explain what was going to happen in the next case. Um, none of the things that uh, is said in his job description based on what's was, um, given in the, on the websites and the information that they give. He didn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And um, he's still in office today, still has his job today. And he's still doing the same thing that he did then, nothing. He's mm -hmm. not doing anything in regards to representing the victims um, of homicide. And, um, you know, that was one of the reasons why uh, Grammy Justice, one of the components of Grammy Justice is advocacy. Because from my experience, I did not have anyone that told me that I needed to complete this form in order to receive my rights. And I did not have anyone that could explain to me, this is what the process is. This is what you need to expect. These are your rights. Pass out, give you all of the information you need so that you could be armed uh, when you go into the courtroom. I did not have that. So one of the components that was so important of Grant Me Justice as we grew and um, became um, the organization that we are today was one of the major components is advocacy. We desire to stand in the gap for these families. And I just want to mention right here, since we're talking about victims advocate, um, um, we now have a, a victims care advocate team. Hmm. And we have a team of trained, not, we have nine people on our team hmm. that are trained to not only walk life with our families, but to walk with them and to be knowledgeable of the criminal justice system to the point where they can point them to all of the resources that they need in order for them to be successful in these cases. Uh, I thought that was so, so important because, um, listen, we have over 500 families that have lost loved ones to violence in this city since 2018. And the number is continuously growing every day. It is important for us to have somebody to say, look, I want to be here for the victim and making sure that the victims are taken care of. I think there's a lot of advocacy going on for the defendant, and I think it's needed. Don't get me wrong. I think it's needed. But I also think that the victim somehow has been lost in this, um, this puzzle of the criminal justice system that someone needs to also take under consideration what it's like to be sitting in this seat and for, for the uh, community not to forget that attached to every one of those 500 families is a family, mm. is, a, is a victim's family. 
and everything that's attached to that was even one of the things that I told the judge. I said, Evelyn has four children. Calvin has children. Kiana has children. Lexi has children. Evelyn has parents. Kiana has parents. Calvin has parents. All of these people are, are connected to one act, one violent act, one decision to take somebody's life. And we should not, as a community, we should not take that lightly. Just look at all of the, all of the um, people that are connected to this one violent act. And this is, I mean, I'm gonna end, try to end with this, is um, one of the things that we did not allow Lex's daughter to go to the funeral. We wanted to wait until she was old enough to understand. Well, it just so happened that um, less than a year after Lex had passed away, she just woke up one day and said, I want my mama, right? She just woke up and just said, I want my mama. And, and I had to explain to her as a less than four-year-old child what had happened to her mom. She wants to know why would they do something like that to her? This is just not my conversation. This is a conversation that many grandparents who are raising children that have been lost to violence, these are the conver some of the conversations that we have to have. So I don't think that a community should think, should um, forget about all of the pieces and parts that are connected to one homicide, just one. And so when I, when I look at um, the families that I serve and all of the different families that's connected just to the one family that I serve, it's important for the community not to forget, not to forget. Felicia, thank you. I know how, I, well, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to go to some of these places and revisit those parts of your story. Um, I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for how you've, your generosity of spirit. Um, in our next episode, we're gonna be bringing uh, together some families who Grant Me Justice has served over the years and hearing about their experiences as we wrap up this first season of the Grant Me Justice podcast. Um, we're grateful to you listeners um, who have given your time to be part of this, and we encourage you to um, purchase the book and read more details and to check out the Grant Me Justice website and get more information about the boots on the ground work that Felicia and others in the team are doing here in Jackson and around the state and throughout the nation. Thank you. Today's podcast was brought to you by Genesis Bank, whose mission is to provide thoughtful financial advice and helpful financial solutions to every customer they serve. To learn more, visit them on the web at genesis.bank.